Good morning. Uh, we're in a series of lessons where we're talking about the great statements Jesus made about himself as recorded in the Gospel of John, these I am statements. Last week, we talked about answering the question, who's going to strengthen me? And Jesus replied with that great statement, I am the vine, you are the branches. So he is that source of strength for us. Today, the question is, who is going to direct me? So turn your Bibles to John 14. That's going to be our text. Uh, the scene here is the Last Supper. Jesus has just told those closest to him that he's going to be leaving. And then he shares some most comforting yet very bold words. You're probably familiar with this passage. It might even be one of your favorites. Look at your Bibles or on the screen and follow along with me. John 14, verses 1 through 6. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Who's going to direct me? That's the question. Is it possible for me to find my own way? You know, if you're finding a place you've never been before, you might use a GPS on your phone or in your car, you know, to kind of map it out for you. And sometimes it'll even give you some choices, you know, here's the fastest route or the scenic route or the shortest route. Uh, and you have to choose which one. I thought about that, and I was thinking about here in town. If you were right here on West 7th Street, and someone asked you, what's the, the best way to get from here to Walmart, what would you say? Would you tell them to go down Trotwood and circle around that way, or would you send them back this way and go down 31 and hit James Campbell there, or would you encourage them to snake around through the back roads and go more directly? There are several ways that you can get to Walmart from here. Some of you may be thinking that none of them are good, you know, because there's not just that one that seems obvious, and so some would go one way, some would go another way. Sometimes we do the same thing with heaven. There's a lot of ways to go. Kind of choose the path that works for you. Sounds good, doesn't it? You know, you choose your own path, but is it true is getting to heaven as open-ended as just, you can go this way to Walmart or go that way to Walmart. Either way, you're going to get there. Sometimes we don't answer that question very well because we're not sure. But choice, not chance, is going to determine your destiny. It is your choice, what you're going to do, who's going to direct you. You know, if it's true that some people kind of describe this like the spoke of a wheel, that all the spokes go to the center. So if you're just trying to get to the center, you just choose a spoke, and they all lead to the same place. If that's true, then it doesn't really matter which spoke you choose or which path you choose. But if heaven has a restricted access, and yet there's someone who's been there before, then we need to think about what does he say about that? What are the instructions that he gives and, and follow those. In fact, Jesus 
This is not the first time where he talks about this restricted view, this kind of narrow way. You might remember early on, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, verse 13 and 14. He says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And those words are hard to hear. Even though we know that Jesus is telling us the truth, we'd rather think that surely most everybody will get to go to heaven. Most everybody will be saved. But that's not what Jesus says. It's not what he says at all. Sometimes we create our own way of thinking, our own system of right and wrong, that we determine who gets to go to heaven. We think we know the best way. And that's a very clear indication that you and I are being influenced by this spirit of relativism that is everywhere. See, the world is quick to give us direction of how we should proceed, what you have to do. You know, climb this ladder to success, question authority. This world began just with a cosmic explosion, and we really think, really? Is that how it all started? Am I really supposed to believe all of that? Maybe you heard the story of the little girl who asked her mother, where do people come from? And she said, oh, that's the best story at all. God made the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, and they had children, and we came from them. And she loved that answer. But then she asked her dad, where do we come from? And her dad said, well, it all started with this big bang, and all these animals evolved. In fact, we evolved from monkeys. So she wasn't sure what to make of that. So she went back to her mom, and she said, how is it possible that you told me that the human race was created by God and dad says that we developed from monkeys. And the little girl, the mom said to the little girl, well, it's easy, really. I was telling you the origin from my side of the family. <laughs> yeah, I don't have to finish that, do I? The world cries out, this is the way to go. It doesn't matter which spoke you choose, which path you choose. And there's a part of it, too, we kind of jump in there, and we kind of get caught up in the self-absorption of look out for number one. And within each one of us, we think, I can do this on my own. And yet Solomon summed up all these feelings and kind of sets it straight. He says very wisely in Proverbs 14, 12, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. So for our lesson today, I want to kind of give you a job description, kind of letting what he tells us in these verses kind of reveal what he's saying about himself in this I am statement. As we're choosing who is going to direct us, well, who should that person be? So if you fill in the blank, the first one is this. It needs to be someone who inspires hope. If someone's going to direct me, I want them to inspire hope. Somebody who inspires us. It's easy to take direction from someone who has the ability to console you when you're going through a hard time or lift your spirits when you get down in the dumps or encourage you when you get tired on this journey. Someone who's inspirational. And that's who Jesus is. In fact, notice how he opens here in John 14, the very first verse, verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled. Isn't that a great sentence? Isn't that a great statement? Let not your hearts be troubled. See, it's healthy to have people that we follow, role models, but only to an extent. In fact, if you remember, Paul was very specific about how he explained this, that we're not commanded to blindly follow people. He says, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Christ is the one who inspires us. 
So number one, find someone who inspires hope. Number two, if I'm looking for direction, I want to choose someone I can trust. I want to choose someone I can trust. Look what he says there in verse one again. Let not your hearts be troubled. He goes on to say, believe in God. Believe also in me. One translation says, trust in God, trust also in me. That's what he's saying here. Not just acknowledge that I exist, but you trust me. What I'm telling you is important. You can trust me with these words. And he's asking this, telling this to his disciples. And he's been with them for three years. He's earned their trust. They know he means what he says. You know, you don't want to take directions from someone you don't trust. You ever been going somewhere and maybe you know you're close to a specific spot, but you're not quite there. Maybe your directions were incomplete, so you pull over to a gas station or, or maybe you see somebody on the side of the road and you ask them. And they go, well, I'm not really sure. And they sort of make up something or so it sounds and give you instructions. And you just politely say, thank you. And you get in your car and you totally ignore what they told you. Maybe stop and ask somebody else because you don't trust them. Now, if they say, oh, it's a great place, you're one block away. Just go one more block and turn right and you're there. Then you might be more likely to trust them because they're confident. But it goes back to trust. If it's about direction, I want someone I can trust. No ulterior motives, no personal gain, no benefit. Our trust comes from the fact that Jesus knows us so well. Matthew 10, 29 through 31. Listen to these words he shares. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are more value than many sparrows. Sometimes we may wonder, does God really care about this little detail in my life? This tiny little thing that I'm stressed over that happened to me? He knows everything. The actions of a single bird... And he uses the illustration about the number of hairs on your head to explain how intricately he's involved in our lives, knows every detail that's happened. The Lord knows you so well, and that should mean something to us. He knows every detail. That's why he's not just saying these words. You really can trust him. Well, then number three, we should follow someone who knows where I want to go. Someone who knows where I want to go, and that's pretty important. Jesus knows that we need to have a goal, some, something to shoot for. And so he uses this explanation here to kind of address what's in our heart, what's in the future, what's around the corner, what's heaven going to be like. And so he uses some words that we can understand and paints a beautiful picture. Look at verse 2, John 14, 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? Isn't that a great thought? He's gone there. It's a big old house. Lots of rooms. Some translations make it sound like there's many mansions. It's a great place. He's making preparations for us there. And that word there that talks about he's gone is a Greek word that's also used to talk about those who blaze the trail for the army. That's what Jesus has done for us there. Then he goes on in verses 3 and 4. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am you may be also and you know the way to where I am going. Several years ago, there was an article in the USA Today described teenagers in one word, one word description for teenagers, aimless. And I think, yeah, that's a pretty accurate word for teenagers. 
But for honest, that's a pretty accurate word for a lot of adults, too. Maybe we got good at it in our teenage years, and did we ever really grow out of that? But Christ came to point us in the right direction. Jesus said in John 10, 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And those who have this abundant life, the most fulfilling life, they're the ones who know where they want to go. Their heart is there, and their mind reflects that. Their past is forgiving. Their future is secure. They live this abundant life he's talking about. So who's going to direct you? The next verse is kind of the pinnacle of this whole passage. Look at verses 5 and 6. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So who's going to direct me? The next blank. Someone who's been there. That's someone you can trust. Someone who's been there. Maybe a dozen ways to get to Walmart, or at least three I can think of. If you cut straight through, it might become a dozen, depending on exactly which turn you take. But there's only one route to heaven. Now, I think it's amazing the way that it's not a series of twists and turns. Notice he doesn't give us a route. He doesn't give us a pathway here. He gives us something that on the surface doesn't make sense. Instead of saying, let me tell you the way, he says, I am the way. That's key. Make sure we get that. Because in his wisdom, we know, he knows that sometimes we're not good at following directions. We can get lost. You ever been on a road trip and you're not sure where you're going and you're following your GPS or maybe printed directions or somebody just told you trying to recall it from memory? And then compare that to a trip where maybe you're caravanning with one car and you're following. And you don't have to know where to go. Just follow that car. That's much easier to do. They go left, you go left. They go right, you go right. We understand that. It's not about finding the right road. Sometimes people will talk about the Bible as being a road map. Not really. It's really just all about Jesus. That you follow him. It's not a philosophy. It's not principles. It's not a path. It's a person. It's all about following Jesus. That's why you hear us say from time and time about being completely committed followers of Jesus. He's the way. The route is the person. You don't have to have a religion. You don't have to have all this routine of repetitive rituals that you do. You follow the person. And then he'll show you what to do. See, I was thinking about this study and what comes to mind with all of this, that so many people, especially those who buy into that concept that there's many roads to heaven, several spokes in the wheel, and they all lead to the center, is that they have nothing against Jesus. In fact, they will say, he's a good man, he's a good prophet. And that sounds pleasant on the surface, but they're denying the truth that he teaches here in John 14. Because Jesus is not just a good man. Jesus is the Son of God. And He hasn't left us the option of not accepting that. And that's where this passage, to most of us, maybe all of us in this room, gives us great comfort. These very words are just fighting words. There's the rub when it says, He is the way. It incites anger and hostility. See, we're not saying Jesus is a way to heaven. He's not saying that. He's saying he is the way to heaven. And that exclusivity of the gospel 
is what infuriates so many people even today. They don't understand it. They don't want to understand it. And it keeps us realizing that our culture is steeped in moral relativism. And that can impact our thinking as well. But Jesus is kind of warning us this path, this open-ended way is so wide that most are going to be in it. And it's going to lead to destruction. It's no wonder that Jesus warned us. Paul shared these words in 1 Thessalonians 5, 21 and 22. It's written as two verses, but it's rather short and quite profound. Look at these words. Test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Isn't that good? Test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form as of evil. It's simple, but it's also the only logical conclusion to all of this. See, our society will tell us you can have your own beliefs. But Jesus says, I am the way. There's only one way. There's only one way that's acceptable to even think about who Jesus is. He's the real answer and the only way. Do you remember the story of Rosie Ruiz? Back in 1980, she won the Boston Marathon, the first woman to cross the finish line. In fact, I think four or five minutes ahead of the next woman. So as she crossed the line, everybody cheered. It was great. And then people started asking, wait, who is this person? Because those who are into marathons, they kind of know each other. They do all these races together. They may not be best friends, but they've seen the names. They kind of know the competition. Nobody knew Rosie. So they started asking some questions pretty quickly, and upon a closer investigation, what they learned, Rosie started the race, legitimately, ran the first mile, then left the race, got in a cab, drove across town, and about the last half mile, and timed it just so that she jumped back in the race and was the first woman to cross the finish line, and everybody cheered. Except for one reporter who was quite astute. Evidently, he knew the big names of the marathon runners. Had never heard of her. And here she goes blowing all the best out of the water. And he came up to her and says, Madam, you are either the fastest woman on the face of the earth or you're a fraud. And he was right. I put this on the screen. It's also in your study guide there. Either Jesus Christ is the Messiah, God's living son who conquered the grave, or he's a fraud. Those are the choices, the only two choices. But, but think with me for a moment. Maybe he pulled off the biggest hoax in history, was able to, during his public ministry, feed 5,000 people somehow, heal hundreds of people, trick crowds into thinking that he'd actually brought the dead people back from the grave, allowed the people to put him to this mock trial, crucify him. He recovered from the beating that more than half the people don't even survive. And suppose that he never really died. That after the crucifixion, they thrust that spear in his side. They put him in that airtight tomb for days. No food, no water, nothing. Then all by himself, he's able to push that stone away, take out a whole entire battalion and convince them to lie about it, and then go back to his disciples and convince all of them to give their life, tell them the good news of Jesus, even though they would be murdered and persecuted, knowing the whole time 
It was a lie. That would be the biggest hoax of all time. And don't forget, all throughout his ministry, when he would talk about his death, he would so quickly follow that up, talking about his resurrection. All the prophecies that he fulfilled, that were written hundreds of years before, fulfills every one. So the question is, is he the son of the living God, or is he a fraud? Look at his words again, John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. His words, and they may be so familiar with us, we don't even think about this, but one author explained the structure, the way it's worded, is it, sort of uh, interesting to know. It kind of comes across like this. I am the way because I am the truth and the life. Makes sense, doesn't it? But if you don't think you're God, you wouldn't say that unless you come back from the grave and you prove it to be true. See, these are not the words of some talk show host or some political candidate who's trying to put a spin on things so they can get your money, get your following. That's not the place, that, that's not his um, way at all. This is God in the flesh telling you he's God in the flesh, the anointed one, the son of the living God. He's asserting that he's deity. When he says, I am the way, he's claiming that he himself is the path. He's the road to God. And he says these words, and to, in case you missed it, he says it very emphatically. No one comes to the Father except through me. So this all roads lead to heaven is a sham. All these spokes go to the center of the wheel. That's true with a wheel. But it's not true in getting to heaven. Now think about that. It's like, that's why we've got to tell the good news to other people. So Michael and Chris Bowen are halfway around the world in a pagan nation trying to let the light of Jesus Christ shine. See, this statement, I'm the way, that goes against everything that our world today especially says. But remember, Jesus never intended to be politically correct. Never. He says these words on a Thursday, knowing that come Sunday, he's coming back from the grave. He's not trying to, to pull something over anybody's eyes. He's stating the fact. He's talking about heaven. Let not your hearts be troubled. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And we love these words because we love talking about heaven. We long for heaven. We like the, the, the lyrics of the song, I Can Only Imagine. You know, will I sing? Will I stand? Will I fall to my knees? What will I do? We love to think about how wonderful heaven will be. But we also know what the Bible tells us about judgment. That we face judgment first. I put it on the screen, Hebrews 9:27. But you know this. Just as it is appointed for man to die once, after that comes the judgment. But Jesus doesn't want us to fear judgment. That's not the abundant life that he came to give us. So how do we deal with this? We know it's coming. So how do we look forward to his return, knowing that judgment is going to be a part of that? He says, I am the way. Let me share a story that I think illustrates it well. It's a story from Max Lucado, a great storyteller. He says, a man named Joel Albright had a reputation in Andrews County where I was raised. He was a tough, fair, and fearless rancher who owned a large sum of acreage on the edge of the county. Everyone knew if you wanted to go hunt rabbits, you do not go on Joel Albright's land. 
The youngest of Joel's four sons was James. James was my best friend. James and I sat on the bench together during high school football games, so we had a lot of time to get to know each other. I remember one time after an out-of-town game, James invited me to stay the night with him. Because the game was out of town, we didn't reach the ranch house until well past midnight. Now, you have to understand, Max writes, that his father, Mr. Albright, didn't know me. When I drove up the old dirt road that led to his ranch house, there stood Joel Albright, if I remember correctly, in his underwear on the porch with a flashlight. Not knowing me and not recognizing my vehicle, when I stepped out of the car, he shone that huge flashlight right in my face. And then he yelled, who are you? I just stood there speechless, shaking in fear. Finally, James, who hadn't been paying attention, stepped out from the passenger side of the car. And once he saw what was happening, he said, it's okay, Dad, it's Max. He's with me. And then James says this. I mean, Max says this. When Mr. Albright heard the voice of his son, James, he put the flashlight down. Then in a soft and comforting tone, Mr. Albright said, oh, okay. Well, come on in then. Now, why could I come in? Because I was with the son of the Father. That's the reason that we do not have to fear judgment. It has nothing to do with your good deeds, but because you know the Son of the Father. When your Heavenly Father sees you in the company of His Son, He will lower the floodlight of judgment and gently say, Come on in. Do you know the Son of the Father? Who's going to direct me? I've chosen Jesus. So the question is, who will direct you? I encourage you to choose someone who inspires hope. Someone you can trust. Someone who knows where you want to go. Someone who's been there. Someone who's going to come back and take you to be with him. And that someone has a name. His name is Jesus. Peter says in Acts 4.12, And there is salvation is no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The one who made you, who created you in his own image, designed you as the same one who took your punishment so you wouldn't have to. And what he wants to know is if you believe. Do you believe he is Jesus, the Son of God, the promised Messiah? Do you believe he is the way, the truth, and the life? Our invitation song is to encourage you to make that confession. Have your sins washed away in baptism? Or if we can pray for you in any way so that you can be on not just that right path, but to know that person. Let's stand and sing and encourage one another.